Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Divine love, thank you for seeing us. Thank you for existing within and around us. And in all of the dark moments, the broken moments, I pray and ask that we would sense in a very real way your everlasting kindness toward us. In Christ's name, amen. And please be seated. Throughout this season after the Epiphany, we have been in a sermon series titled The Christian Mysteries, which has explored how the ancient Christian ideas of incarnation, resurrection, and trinity can make meaning in our lives today as we hold the story of Jesus in conversation with our evolving understanding of justice, goodness, and reality itself. We've talked about incarnation, a lens through which we exist in union with the divine who, as the book of Ephesians reminds, is over all and through all and in all. Materiality is all utterly holy. And we've talked about resurrection, a lens through which death is not the end, but rather a gate, a path, a womb that gives birth to new ways of being and seeing. It's this transformative pattern of life again and again and again. And we've talked about Trinity, a lens through which the infinite God is not patriarchal or hierarchical, but rather a circle, a dance of interrelationship that we belong to and exist within, whether we realize it or not. So good. Beautiful, in fact. But... But what about all of those other times, right? Like, what about those other often experienced human moments? Like, instead of incarnation, excarnation. (laughs) Materiality is flawed. Flesh is bad. This world is abandoned. We are on our own. Or how about instead of resurrection, death? Like those moments during which there is no light, there is no hope, there is no sense of good, and we feel as though there is absolutely no possibility. It is all pain and suffering and death. Or how about instead of Trinity, duality? God up there, humans down here, right, wrong, rich, poor, queer, straight, male, female, documented, undocumented, in, out. For certainly we all have these moments, don't we? Very human moments filled with worry and consternation. Very human moments filled with shame and guilt. Very human moments filled with pain and suffering, isolation and alienation. It is a much lived within world. This world of excarnation, death and duality. It's a world, I think you could say, that's filled with crosses. 
Now, when I say the word cross, we enter into the theological land of atonement in Christian thought. Unfortunately, the word cross and the theological land of atonement have become triggering and traumatizing, right? And rightly so. For many, a cross has come to mean divine violence. And atonement has come to mean getting right with God through forgiveness, which is the result of Jesus' shed blood. At Pearl, we've done our best to try and speak against these harmful ideologies. Uh, We talk about them in our Reconstruction class. We get into these ideas a little bit more in our Catechesis class. We have a podcast titled Story and Table. Episode 6 is called Atonement. And we've written a couple articles on this that you can find under resources on our website. The first is titled Good News, The Essence of Atonement. And the second is titled Christian Captivity in Paul's Atonement. I I tell you about these resources because I'm going to spend very little time here in this sermon deconstructing atonement. But I will briefly say that the idea of the divine needing blood to forgive sins or the idea of the divine killing Jesus so that humans can be saved or the idea that God killing Jesus on our behalf is a good gospel that we must believe or else. These are ancient and barbaric ways that humans have attempted to make meaning of Jesus' death on a cross. And while these ways of meaning-making have done some good for some people in particular moments of human history and in particular stages of human consciousness, overall these ideas have had horrifying outcomes in humanity. God is violent. It's horrifying. God needs blood. Horrifying. Violence is redemptive. Violence is redemptive. It's horrifying. And it's a myth. Believe or else. It's horrifying. Because of this, many of us hear the word cross or the word atonement, and it's sometimes like deer in a headlight, right? I don't know what to do with atonement and the cross. Or, or perhaps it's trembling. Those ideas are frightening. Or perhaps it's disgust. Those ideas make me feel sick inside. Or perhaps for some, it's trauma. Those ideas have hurt so many people, even me. It's a travesty. Because the soul of what Christians call atonement is supposed to be, from the beginning, all about repair. I think an even better idea for atonement is to mend. This is the soul of atonement, to repair, to mend. You see, there are these human moments during which we experience excarnation instead of incarnation, death instead of resurrection, and duality instead of trinity, which is to say there are these other human moments during which incarnation and resurrection and trinity are unable to hold the fullness of our human experiences. These are the worst moments. They're the painful moments. The meaningless moments, the dark moments, the lonely moments, the disintegrating moments. Many of us might even call these the deathly moments. There are these moments when we humans, broken and bleeding, cry out in all certainty, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are very real moments. 
You see, the cross, or the meaning-making of Jesus' death on the cross, which is the theological work of atonement, atonement is the Christian space and place for humans to grapple with human experiences that don't fit within the Christian ideals of incarnation, resurrection, and trinity. Now, to be clear, no matter what we face, these ideals do exist. The infinite is within materiality, incarnation. Life does grow up out of death all of the time, resurrection. And it is all connected, Trinity. And yet, yet we humans have very real experiences such as sickness or pain or loneliness or brokenness or confusion or exclusion or violence or injustice that for a time just blow up our understanding of everything. And it's here, in the grip of death itself, that Christians have turned to the cross and to the theology of atonement for millennia. Betrayed by Judas, falsely accused by religious leaders, mocked and abused by soldiers and strangers, abandoned by his closest friends, Jesus is unjustly humiliated and violently killed on a cross. Betrayed, accused, mocked, abused, abandoned, humiliated, killed. It's no wonder that Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus cried out from his cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which could also be translated, my God, my God, why have you deserted me? Or my God, my God, why have you left me behind? And yet, rather than make room for these kinds of questions, we Christians often feel compelled to give some theological answers, right? During these terrible human moments. Incarnation. Hey, God is in all of this. God is in everything that you're going through right now. Or resurrection. Just hang on. This will not last forever. Something new is about to rise. Maybe you heard this one. This is going to be a ministry for you one day. (laughs) (laughs) or how about trinity you are not alone you are the beloved yeah sure maybe at some point right but but not now not during crucifixions not while people are laid bare on crosses human experiences of death are in acute need of another kind of container to help make meaning of what is going on And Christian thought that container is called atonement. And atonement begins with, my God, my God, why have you left me? My God, my God, why have you deserted me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No answers, full stop. And to be clear, these thoughts, these feelings, these words, these experiences of forsakenness are not heresy. They are not a sign of a lack of faith. They are not immaturity. They are quite literally the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus makes space for human experiences of divine forsakenness. Thank goodness. If you're a Jew in the 8th century BCE Babylon, or a Christian in 2nd century CE Rome, or a quote-unquote pagan in medieval Christian Europe, or black in the late 19th century United States, or queer in the 20th century, or a young woman today post-Roe, what are the helpful theological solutions to your darkness and experiences of isolation and exclusion and death? 
If a parent abused you or a partner betrayed you or a child left you, what are the helpful theological solutions? If a dream crashed or your life took a bad turn or you are sick or in pain or are dying, what are the helpful theological solutions? Atonement invites us to follow after Jesus into the ancient and deeply human experience of divine forsakenness, where it is okay to question it all, wonder about it all, feel, maybe even rage against it all. I find the poets help me on this journey. Rilke writes, It feels as though I make my way through massive rock, like a vein of ore, alone, encased. It's an experience we all have had, isn't it? Like a doctor telling Jen and me after our first ultrasound that our baby may have a heart problem, my mom dying of cancer, or this church that I love so much struggling to survive its move to being affirming. My brother addicted to drugs on and off the streets again, the ache of wondering if some of my most meaningful relationships will survive. This is not just my experience. This is the very human experience, isn't it? My God, my God, why have you deserted me? And it's here in this very place that atonement begins. Atonement begins in the massive rock. Atonement begins in the vein of ore. Atonement begins alone, encased. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, as we take the time to feel our experiences of divine forsakenness, I don't know about you, but for me, people, right? People often start to come into focus as contributors to my suffering, you know? That person in power or the people who created that system or the friend or partner who did that to me. And it's in the midst of this kind of moment that Luke describes Jesus stating some really astonishing words. Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. Atonement is no joke, right? It begins with our experiences of divine forsakenness and then it takes a sharp turn right into forgiveness. Forgiveness. In talking about forgiveness, I want to begin by acknowledging that if we were to share all of the things that have hurt us, like all of the terrible things that have been done to us, and we just piled it up in this room, I am certain that that pile would extend far beyond the ceiling above us. And that is no small thing. It's certainly not a good thing. Horrible things have occurred in our lives. And so I want to be really clear about a few things in relation to forgiveness. First, forgiveness isn't to say that a person or people shouldn't have consequences or that justice is unnecessary. Forgiveness and justice are siblings, but they're not identical twins. And second, forgiveness doesn't mean that you must reconcile relationship with another person. Of course, that may be an outflow of forgiveness, but it's not the same thing as forgiveness. In fact, it may be wise for you to ensure no contact with certain people for the rest of your life. And third, when considering forgiveness, it may be helpful to remember that it isn't really about the person or people who have hurt you. I want to say that again. Forgiveness isn't really about the person or people who have hurt you. Forgiveness is about you. Forgiveness is about your life. Forgiveness is about your flourishing, 
despite the wrongs that you've endured at the hands of other humans in this world. In a study by psychologist Charlotte Whitley, people were asked to think about someone who had hurt them, mistreated them, offended them. While they were pondering these things, she monitored their blood pressure, heart rate, facial muscle tension, and sweat gland activity. According to the study, when people recalled a past offense, their physical arousal soared, their blood pressure and heart rate increased, and they sweated more. Nobody wants to sweat more. (laughs) The study found that ruminating on past wrongs was stressful, unpleasant, causing them to feel angry, sad, anxious, and less in control of their own lives. In contrast, the study then asked the participants to empathize with or try to imagine forgiving those who wronged them. And the results of practiced forgiveness made physical arousal and its associated effects diminish. In a different study by Frank Fitchman and Julie Hall, they reviewed 17 empirical studies on forgiveness and relationships and found that a lack of forgiveness leads to competition rather than compromise and that the presence of forgiveness resulted in an increase of relational benevolence. I tell you about these studies to try and reorient the direction of forgiveness. We often think of forgiveness as giving a free pass to the person who has hurt us, as if forgiveness is is for them. And yet the reality is that forgiveness is actually for us, for us. According to the studies, forgiveness makes us less stressed, less angry, less sad, less anxious, and less competitive. According to the studies, forgiveness makes us more peaceful, more benevolent, and it increases the experience of having control over our very own lives. Control over our very own lives. What's wild about this finding is that after the expression of forsakenness and this work of forgiveness, Jesus becomes capable of this wonderful thing called surrender. Luke writes, Then Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. I think this is fascinating. I mean, the whole thing begins with Jesus deeply feeling that he has been forsaken by God, and and then it ends with Jesus surrendering his life to the very God that he thought had forsaken him. It makes me think, perhaps this, this is the ultimate repair. Like, maybe this is the mending that atonement intends to work. Like, we Christians exist within incarnation, a lens through which the divine is overall and all through all. Materiality is utterly holy. And, and we Christians exist within resurrection, a lens through which death is not the end, but just a beginning, a, a birthing into something new. We Christians exist within Trinity, a lens through which the infinite is not patriarchal or hierarchical, but a circle, a dance into which we belong and already exist. But then life happens, right? Like if you were in Portland in the 80s or maybe anywhere, there's that old bumper sticker, shit happens, (laughs) right? I remember reading that for the first time. I'm like, yes, yes, that does. That happens all the time. And when it does, these Christian lenses, I think, crack. Sometimes big, sometimes small, but they do, they crack. Because these human experiences of divine forsakenness and human harm alter, I do believe they alter our perception of reality itself. But excarnation, death, 
this world of duality are not lenses for flourishing. Over time, these ways of seeing close us up and harden us. Over time, these ways of seeing make us small and they shut us down. Sinking under questions about God's presence and human goodness, could it be possible that crosses become the very places that we both lose God and find God? It makes me wonder. Could it be possible that crosses become the very places that we hold harm and come to forgive harm? It makes me wonder. Could it be possible that crosses become the very places that we both close up and learn to surrender? Our theology of atonement says yes. Jesus' crucifixion is the place of repair. It's where the mending happens. And as Christians, we're invited to spend time here, to ponder here, to learn from Jesus here, to find God here. Can we pull up the painting? This famous painting is by the great Venetian artist Titian. It's titled Crucifixion. If you were to see it in real life, it's huge, 12 feet tall by six and a half feet wide. Could you imagine walking up to this? I really love it. No angels flying around, no crowds swarming, no God punishing vindictively from above, somehow calling that salvation. No, just Jesus crucified on a cross. Below him, his mom married the disciple that he loved so much, John. And for some reason, St. Dominic, the founder of the Dominican order, making a cameo appearance. <laughs> <laughs> But I love this painting. It depicts, I believe, Christian life. Three humans pondering, grieving, grappling, questioning, and maybe even opening themselves to an entirely new reality of God itself. The esteemed theologian Jürgen Moltmann explains, when the crucified Jesus is called the image of the invisible God, the meaning is that this is God, and God is like this. God is not greater than he is in his humiliation. God is not more glorious than he is in this self-surrender. God is not more powerful than he is in this helplessness. God is not more divine than he is in this humanity. Throughout the history of Christendom, Christian mystics and marginalized theologians have always rejected the idea of substitutionary atonement for sins. Instead, they've pointed at pictures like this and they have declared, there, there's God. There's God breaking and bleeding. There's God self-giving and forgiving. There's God suffering and dying. And then they always, they almost always make this really, really important turn. They point at this, they point at humans, and they declare, there, there's God in you. There's God breaking and bleeding beside you. There's God self-giving and forgiving through you. There's the very manifestation of God suffering and dying with you. No longer forsaken, but held, I think we slowly begin to open our arms wider and wider on these crosses that we bear. 
while we say with perhaps more and more conviction, divine love into your hands, I commit my spirit. And maybe, like the dawn itself, incarnation slowly begins to rise again. Maybe God is in even this. Maybe, like the dawn itself, resurrection slowly unfolds again. Maybe this is me being born again. And maybe, like the dawn itself, Trinity slowly captures us in its dance again. I am the Beloved. For atonement has carried us in its wings back to life itself, if we let it. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for this image of yourself, which is also very much our lived experience. For many times we've been in pain, sick, suffering, feeling forsaken. I pray and ask that you would help us Christians to slow down and to be there alone, in the rock, encased. And I pray that you would help us to make time to see those who have harmed us. Help give us wise ways to consider forgiveness so that we might be set free and in control of our own lives. At which point we can open wide and surrender ourselves once again to you. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.